You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, as many of you know, Molly Thomas Blazing, professor, uh, associate professor, she just got tenure. Uh, is a PhD alum from Slavic Studies here in 2014. I can't believe it's been seven years. The time really flies. Um, and there's a number of reasons we wanted to invite Molly back, and we were so glad that she agreed to to come back and, and give a talk today. Um, I just wanted to mention some of those some of those reasons. For one thing, she has considerable experience on the job market. <laughs> experience in quotes, right? She, she put in some work. She did a, a bunch of uh, one or two year appointments before, uh, uh, through perseverance, uh, landing a tenure tenure line job at the University of Kentucky. And as we mentioned, she uh, she pursued that to the logical endpoint and, and received tenure for this this year. So congratulations. Um, she's also an incredibly innovative teacher. We went out to dinner last night with a couple of the graduate students in, in our, in our uh, program who are here, and we heard about a, a couple of courses that she's taught, and I just wanted to mention one of them because I think I'm so fascinated by it, which is an advanced Russian language course for STEM students. So we're hoping that you get to teach that on a regular basis and that we might see a textbook at some point um, because I think that would be a terrific uh, thing to share with the profession as a whole. Um, and also, she has systematically reworked her dissertation, uh, which was supervised by uh, Professor Meredith David Bethay, who is unfortunately not in Madison today and could not be here for the talk, um, into a book published by, as you can all see from your flyers, prestigious <laughs> Cornell University Press. So we're going to hear, and we look forward to hearing uh, a, a bit about the book. Not everything, is, uh, you can't do everything in a, in a Krieger lecture, but some details from the book, um, uh, which is called The Wonderful Title of Snapshots of the Soul. So, Molly, welcome and thank you. So, thanks, thanks, David, for the really kind information. It's been really nice to be back in Madison. October in Madison is my favorite, is my favorite place and my favorite season. Um, and a big thanks to Jennifer and Courtney and Krika for um, sponsoring lecture and organizing everything for me. It's been a really nice, really nice visit. Um, so as David said, I started this project quite a long time ago. I, I proposed this as a dissertation idea in 2008, and I defended finally in 2014, and um, the book came out this past July. So it's a, in many ways, it's sort of the end of a, of a long journey for me. Um, but at the same time, I hope that this, that the appearance of the book becomes a point of departure um, for for more conversations about the way that photography has shaped Russian poetic writing from its inception in, in, um, in the 1840s to the present day. There's so much to be said, and so my book is really uh, the beginning of uh, a conversation on that topic. So this book asks broadly what compels a poet to turn to the photograph, whether as a subject of a work, as material for metaphor, or as the structural framework for a poem. Snapshots of the Soul, this book represents part of a growing body of scholarship that investigates the particular way that photography operates as the material or method for poetic writing in the 20th century. 
In my work, I draw on theories of lyric and elegy, the social history of technology, and little-known materials from the Russian literary archives to consider how encounters with photographs and photography enter the space of poetic writing for a range of Russian language poets um, in emigre contexts as well as in Soviet and post-Soviet Russia. Uh, you can see some of their pictures here. The main chapters of the book offer a deep dive into photography's role in the creative worlds of Marina Tsvetaeva, Boris Pasternak, Joseph Brodsky, and Belak Madulina. Um, and I also, in the final chapter in the coda and the introduction, look at um, different ways that a, a selection of modern and contemporary poets also incorporate photography into their work. So the book uses the main case studies to ask how and why poets are drawn to the language, the representational power, and metaphoric possi metaphorical possibilities that photography offers. And I found in my, in my research that photography's status as a kind of visual threat to the verbal arts compels these writers to harness the poetic word, to confront, engage, and sometimes transcend the power of photographic verisimilitude. Photography ultimately operates as both inspiration for and opponent for, um, for poets for whom language is the primary material for expression within a world increasingly dominated by image. Um, so there's this kind of Bloomian anxiety of influence problem where the poets imitate aspects of the photographic, but they also innovate and engage with photographic scene in new ways that are made possible only through poetic writing. I also want to say that my work is more than just the study of ekphrases. So ekphrases is like, would be a poem about a photograph, uh, describing a photograph. The book takes as a central question something broader, and I'm aiming to open scholarship to more of an investigation of the deeper ontological connections between the, the lyric poem and the photographic snapshot. So when we think of photography and poetry in, the, uh, in Russian culture, we tend to think about photo montage experiments. And there are um, a number of scholars, Stephen Hutchings, Yindrik Toman, Alexander Bashkovich, um, Sergei Lukashin has a new book on this. Um, many people have done fascinating work on photo montage and poetry. And, and this is an important topic, but my research, research has a different focus. So I'm interested in what I call the poetics of photography, or photopoetics. And by that I mean those elements of photographic processes and modes of photographic representation that give rise to new forms of lyric expression. When I talk about the poetics of photography, I'm engaging with those aspects of photography that can become the essential creative material of poetry. So this includes, for example, the way that photographic motifs and photochemical metaphors and the lexicon, words that make up sort of our photographic culture, are written into poetic texts that are not necessarily inspired by actual photographs or are not necessarily printed on a page alongside an accompanying image. So this broader photo poetics deals with the qualities of the photograph that bring about poiesis, right, the creation and production of other imaginative realms. So what are these qualities? Well, they include things like the possibility of instantaneous fragmented images of real world experience, um, the complex relationship between the self and the past, 
a tension between motion and stasis, distortions of memory, uh, or if you think of uh, writing by Bosch and Sontag, this, this and, uh, association with the anticipation of death. And so many of these thematic and aesthetic concerns were shared by poets writing before the invention of photography. But the advent of the camera age required new attention to and new methods for engaging them. As skillful readers of the photograph, the poets featured in my book transform and create something new from their encounters with this medium. They pushed beyond describing or embellishing photographs with text. Moved by their various encounters with photography, they are challenged to expand the possibilities of poetic expression in new directions. And these poets, as we will see, use the process of poetic writing to deepen, enrich, and enhance what photographic representation makes possible. So before we move to look at a few examples of photopoetics, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the title of the book, Snapshots of the Soul, like where it comes from and how it illustrates the powerful way that Russian poets are developing photopoetics beyond ekphrasis. Boris Pasternak's 1916 poem, Anguish, Craze, Craze, closes with a fascinating and troubling imperative. The lyric speaker of the poem appeals to a glass cutter to fit into an open frame a, quote, caustically ingrained photograph of my soul. Within the space of these lines that conclude this obscure futurist poem by one of Russia's most important 20th century poets is an image that condenses into itself many of the problems and opportunities that arise when poetry encounters or takes up the photographic. This central noun phrase, a photograph of my soul, captures with incredible precision the tensions that arise when written word faces off with this powerfully precise technology for capturing and preserving images taken from life. And when embedded in the lines of a lyric poem, this phrase issues an aggressive challenge to photography, a challenge that responds directly to the threat photography poses to writing. So what could this mean, a photograph of the soul? And how does it challenge the limits of the possible? And the soul is an essence of a being, yet it's this fully intangible aspect. It's something that's enduring and transcendental and ephemeral, but the soul is invisible, and in fact, it completely defies visualization. It's something that can never exist in material form. And yet, this is precisely what makes the notion of a photograph of a soul so tantalizing to the poet. For to use the poetic word to bring into existence the essence of a person or an experience in legible and sometimes tangible poetic form is to engage in the true project of poetry. Because poetry, whether it's the form of, in the form of a love lyric or a political polemic or an object poem, is the production of the voice of the soul itself. Now, it's not only Pasternak who uses this particular phrase, photograph of the soul. Um, versions of this concept appear in the words and works of other poets as well. Um, for example, in Rina Tsipaeva's lines from her 1931 poem, this is the end of the poem, uh, a girlish daguerreotype of my soul. Um, we also have an interview from Dostoevsky where he makes this assertion that poems themselves are like photographs of the soul. Uh, so he says, like, I have seven or eight nativity poems. It's a sort of form of discipline, like a man who takes a photo of himself every year in order to see what he looks like. 
And it seems to me this way, in this way you can more or less follow your stylistic development, the growth of the soul in some sense. In other words, these poems are like photographs of the soul. Fortunately, huge massive negatives are lost. And indeed, but he would, you know, when he lived in Petersburg, uh, his parents would take a photograph of him on the spot every year. So he really does both of these practices, writing the Christmas poems and writing and, and photographing as a way of sort of marking the development of the soul. So this formula, Snapshots of the Soul, is an irreconcilable collision of ideas. It's an impossible product because of its simultaneous demand for and rejection of material artifact. Yet I think within the incompatibility of this irreconcilable phrase is precisely what Foucault has called in his meditation on the visual and verbal arts a starting point for speech. He writes, it is not that words are imperfect or that when confronted by the visible, they prove insuperably inadequate. Neither can be reduced to the other's terms. It is in vain that we say what we see. What we see never resides in what we say. But if one wishes to keep the relation of language to vision open, if one wishes to treat their incompatibility as a starting point for speech instead of as, as an obstacle to be avoided, so as to stay as close as possible to both, then one must preserve the infinity of the task. So to create a photograph of the soul is an impossible or put differently an infinite task. And it is precisely what is so compelling to these, to these poets. Using photography to access an intangible essence of being is something that, um, as I demonstrate in the, in the final chapter of the book, is frequent, frequently something that we see occurring in a space of altered consciousness. It happens a lot in the space of sleep and dreams. And if you notice the Vera Pavlova quote in the beginning, right? Um, poems are photographs made in a dream. The late Soviet photo photographer, poet Alexei Parshikov warns of the hazards of this realm of altered consciousness. And he suggests that photographs present us with dangerous visions, the sort of doom Orpheus on his journey from the underworld. Parshikov writes, photography has never been connected to two-dimensional existence or timetables. It has a visionary task, and it more closely resembles the state of sleep and dreams. Perhaps photography is Orpheus's backward glance, and you're better off tearing up the photographs if you don't want to know too much about what lies ahead. Photography's anticipation of what lies ahead, of course, is uh, indicative of the medium's strong associations with themes of death and mourning. And this elegiac accent is almost part of a like a ritualized use of, of themes of death and mourning that arise when they, when they um, bring the photographic trope into the poem. When photography is present as a subject or image in a poem, it almost always carries with it the pain of the loss of a loved one, a shadow of a future death, or the trace of an encounter that is otherwise irretrievable. There are a number of elegant examples of photo poems about death that I cover in the introduction and in the main chapters of the book, and I would welcome your questions about that if that's a topic of interest to you. Um, but my plan for today is to show you a few of the poems where the poet is doing what I described in the introduction there, using the photographic, somehow invoking or imitating something photographic, photographic processes, as a way of showing what poetry can do that photography cannot. So we'll look at my favorite examples from Tutayeva, Pasternak, and just a tiny bit of Brodsky. Um, and then in the final portion of the talk, I want to fast forward to what's happening today. Sort of in the last 20 years, I'm going to sort of make a prediction. I have offer a hypothesis about the current and future directions of photoprotic writing in Russia. 
So Pasternak. Pasternak is a great example of a poet with a complicated relationship with photography. Pasternak is extremely dismissive of photographic portraits. He thinks most of them are bad. And he has a lot of antipathy towards photographs of, of himself in particular, uh, which he says usually make him look like a Cretan or a gorilla. And this is a phrase that he repeats a number of times uh, in, his, in his letters and other places. Um, though he's often critical of his own photographs, Pasternak does occasionally praise images that he finds to be skillfully rendered. So what are the conditions for a successful portrait in Pasternak's view? And this is one of them. Uh, one key criterion for a successful photograph is that it captures the living dynamic essence of a person, a trace of the body in motion. And so how does Pasternak imagine that one could capture uh, the dynamic motion, uh, nature of dynamic motion in the form of a static photographic image? Um, in relating to Svetaev of the circumstances that led to the creation of this rare flattering portrait in his, in his view, uh, it was taken in the studio of the well-known Petersburg photographer Moisey Napolban. Um, Pasternak emphasizes the way that a variety of external factors led the photographer to successfully capture his image. And the key, he reports, is that the picture was successful because he was photographed, quote, in all aspects instantaneously. So this is the quote. Um, by the way, you once spoke of a photograph. The only time I turned out well in a photo was because I was photographed in all aspects instantaneously. They were taking pictures of Kenya and our boy in the photographer's studio and everything was set up and ready to go and they invited me to join the picture. I didn't even have a chance to collect myself, it just turned out, that is, I turned out well. I was overheated, it was summertime in Petersburg, I just carried the boy up six flights of stairs and in the attic studio under the skylight window it was very stuffy. Usually I come out looking like a Cretan or a gorilla, which in actuality, and not only in the slice of an instant I am. <laughs> While there's little in the resulting family portrait that would suggest this heated, hurried scene that apparently took place in the moments leading up to um, the one that's captured on film, Pasternak emphasizes that motion and physicality of the moment, right? the sweltering heat, the exhaustion from having climbed the stairs, the suddenness of the invitation to join with his family, and he attributes the success of the image to the spontaneity of entering the photo frame. Though the still photograph, uh, without Pasternak's explanation, betrays little of this dynamic backstory, we see in Pasternak's interpretation of the image evidence of the centrality of the interplay of motion and stasis that lies at the heart of this writer's simultaneous attraction to you and repulsion from photography's ability to still and preserve moments of life. Pasternak's younger brother, Alexander, recalls in his memoirs a set of photographic flip books that Karl Pasternak, the boy's uncle, sent from Vienna. Uh, the the um, Moybridge picture here, they had different things, horses and toy soldiers and um, a, a, a sort of European street scene in these photographic flip books. Alexander uh, uh, describes how adept Boris was at rhythmically manipulating the books in such a way that the motion was perfectly unbroken, while Alexander, the younger brother, was struggling to keep the Austrian soldiers from moving in comically jerky bits of starts. Um, so he writes, uh, this is Alexander Pasternak's memoirs here, it's, Boris was determined to master the secret of the albums. We used to study individual photographs for hours, particularly amazed by the incredible pictures taken in mid-action. Gradually, we worked out that each photograph differed from the next in some imperceptible detail, and that if you skipped several pages, the difference became obvious. 
in the end, we came to the conclusion that everything in nature acted this way, the same way that we saw here. There was an uninterrupted chain of infinitesimal moments, uh, movements, a small number of which had been caught by the camera. Buddies made this discovery, which had a truly overwhelming effect on both of us. So the process of studying the fine anatomical details of the photographic flipbook pages revealed to Pasternak the photography's ability to capture in precise detail like a single slice of a moment with, that within the flow of time is imperceptible to the human eye. Yet at the same time, this dynamic movement of time is documented in an incomplete fashion. The camera can only capture a fragment of time's infinite and uninterrupted chain of motion. Pasternak's book of lyric poems, Sistra Maya Gizan, was conceived in the summer of 1917 and published uh, first in Moscow in 1922. And it's, it's no accident that Marina Tsutaiba uses the word Svetopis in her essay, Svetavoy Lieben, to characterize this important early collection. It's the first of Pasternak's that she read. And she writes uh, this about the collection. By the way, on the nature of light in Pasternak's poetry, Svetopis, that's what I call it. A poet of lightnesses, others are, for instance, poets of darknesses. Light, eternal courage, light in space, light in movement, slashes of light, explosions of light, veritable banquets of life. It has flooded and overflowed, not just from the sun, but from all that radiates. And for us or not, everything gives off rays of light. So Svetopis, of course, is the, the original Russian word for photography, right? Svetopis. Um, and while photography is Maybe not, maybe not precisely what Svetaeva means when she uses Svetopis to characterize the writing of My Sister Life. As an amateur photographer herself, she was undoubtedly aware of its extended lexical connotations. And the extent to which Svetopis does here refer to photography is, I think, in fact, a really apt characterization of this collection. The entire uh, book of poems is, is full of these photographic images. We've got flashbulbs and light sensitizing solutions and animated photographic portraits. Um, so we're going to look at uh, poems like Zerfala and Groza also Zamesitinitsa. And in these poems, photography works to establish an enduring aesthetic principle for Pasternak, something that I traced like, throughout his entire um, writerly life. And this, this is a principle that locates inspiration, emotion, and consciousness at points of tension between the static and dynamic states of being. So let's, let's look at just um, this, this one from which really does a really good job of capturing that the way that Hester Knox poetry resists, resists trying to fix any moment. That he calls on photography to be present in these poems without stilling the image or taking it from the flow of, of time. So here, the Timprashal's Lietas Polustankum. it's such an amazing text in the way that it brings about this image of right the, the thunder like unleashes this like hundred blinding photographs taken by night. Um, and even that formulation, it's often commented on, on scholarship on this poem, right? This blinding photographs, they they erase vision, right? They're not about it's not about fixing photographs. 
photographs. It's not about printing photographs. It's really hardly about photography at all. It's about sort of nature and its dynamic motion. But he's calling on photography to give us this sense that, that capturing this is possible, but, but not with a photo camera, right, but through poetry. It even allows, right, the life in this poem allows for the illumination of consciousness, right, this aval saznanya, there's like even more light, right? This like hyper illumination. And it's brought about through the invocation of photography. It's not at all about um, printed photographs. So this is really what I mean about photo poetics. Let's turn now to Marina Tsutayla's relationship with photography. Tsutai is often assumed to be a poet who completely rejects the visual world in favor of the auditory plane of existence. She writes about this a lot. Um, but she was completely captivated by photography. And she once wrote in a letter to her husband in the early 1930s, Yarbrush did not photographer, I'm born a photographer. And she describes staying up really late and developing photographs that she had taken. She's got all the equipment. She had a camera and she um, even purchased, oops, she purchased for her daughter Ariana this Kodak Brownie camera. I just learned about this. Yeah, this is not in my book. Uh, this was I just discovered these last week um, on the Instagram account of the Tsutaiwa Museum in Moscow. They're so beautiful, right? Ariana's taking these selfies in a mirror with her Kodak Brownie camera. I think I just I'm so moved by them. They're really beautiful. Um, all right, so. Unlike the way that photographic motifs operate in Pasternak's poetry, Tsutaiva is drawn to photographic prints. In fact, she envisions them as a kind of third space where poetic souls can commune across impossible distances. Um, her use of photographs is similar to how she uses dream motifs and tombstone imagery and just the poetic word itself. It's this way of constructing these metaphysical bridges of, uh, that can connect poet soul, poetic souls from whom she's separated by great distances and even, uh, even death. So where does she do this? Um, in an early poem, uh, To Babushka, Babushka, she writes about the um, photographic portrait of her maternal grandmother that was in the house the family home. And this is an acrostic study where she writes about the tendrils and the hair and the personal history of this person. And then at the end, she has this sort of uh, lyric apostrophe, right? Is this fiery spirit inside of me coming from you, right? So she addresses the photographic portrait, something that's very common across um, poetry about photographs. So there's this opportunity to connect with a former ancestor. Um, she does it as well in her correspondence with Rilke. So she and Pasternak Roka exchanged letters in the summer of 1926. And she and Roka exchanged photographs. She sent him a passport photo, and he says, oh, thank you so much for this. I don't want to send you my passport photo because it's sort of such a haphazard image, but I'm going to place my photo with your photo on the desk, and they can get acquainted. we can get acquainted in pictures. Right? She must have loved this, because this is exactly how she saw photographs, as this opportunity to commune with other poetic souls. Um, and later in the correspondence, um, she received a packet of, of eight or nine photographs from Rilke of, of his, his home and his writing desk, and here he is in his garden. And she writes about those as well. Um, when she's leaving Czechoslovakia, this place of you know, terrible, important time in her life, 
and this, you know, the morning as she's leaving this place, um, she writes to her friend Anna Tuskova in Prague, and she says, send me a photograph of the Prague night. Uh, she thought, and this is actually a photo that David took, um, or Kruster, you guys, do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so she saw in the face of this, this uh, young boy, the statue, her own likeness, and she felt this commonality to her across ages, across cultures, across centuries, um, and she wanted a photograph of it. She didn't want a painting, she didn't want a drawing, it was really important, it was a black and white photograph, right, front, facing front of the statue. It was the photograph that was really important, because that's the way to get to the soul of this, of this you know, medieval night. Um, let's look at a poem. So, um, one poem that is, that is further enriched by understanding Svetayeva's interest in photography is this 1931 poem that I mentioned at the beginning, Dom. Um, and this is a poem that, that beautifully illustrates the way that poets invoke fo photo the photographic, but they do something more, they do something that poetry um, can do that photography cannot. So Svetayeva's interest in the photographic medium reached its greatest intensities in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And this fact compelled me to re-examine this text that has this, you know, this ending line, right, the girlish decaricate of my soul. Um, it's, it's the conclusion equates the old dilapidated house of the poem's title with this, right, it is this girlish daguerreotype of my soul. So scholars have remarked on the metamorphosis in this poem of the image of the home into a kind of self-portrait of the soul. Um, and this reading makes even more sense if we understand, if we know what Svetayeva knew about particular, the particular physical properties of certain photographic image objects, such as the daguerreotype. Because it plays a central role in how she constructs the visual and temporal layers that define the text. The visual metaphor of the daguerreotype is more than a wistful hearkening back to some earlier era. Instead, the image provides us with a key organizational principle for the overall design of the poem. The lyric itself is constructed as if the speaker is looking at a daguerreotype, seeing at once her own facial features reflected in and superimposed on the image of the home. So a vision of the self within an image from a childhood memory. Here's just a bit of the poem. Is Padmachmornik Bravye Dom? Будто юности моей день, будто молодость моя меня встречает. Здравствуй, я. Так самочувственно знаком лоб, прячущийся под плащом, плюща, срастающийся с ним, смешающийся, будь почти. Oliver Wendell Holmes famously called the daguerreotype a mirror with a memory. Go back to this because of its distinctive reflective properties. So has anyone ever held a daguerreotype or seen a daguerreotype? A couple of people, but we don't have a lot of, you know, we don't have a lot of access to them. Um, they're really, really cool. I, I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to, to find them. So daguerreotypes are, are created on these polished silver metal plates, um, which is a highly reflective surface. And Adam Franklin, in his article on um, the place of photography in the poetic world of Emily Dickinson writes the following. Unlike paper prints, daguerreotypes are excellent mirrors, which makes, them, uh, makes the image difficult to see as the light reflects off different parts of the surface. When you look at a daguerreotype, you are almost always seeing a reflection of your face or eyes. Um, your mirror image is the ground for the portrait's figure. 
So the speaker of the Shatayva's poem goes on to interweave the image of her forehead under the hood of a raincoat with the ivy that grows on the roof of the house as Piyash emerges phonetically with Yush. The visual imagery is also layered onto a single plane. And later, the forehead becomes the archway of her father's museum, while her eyes are reflected in the thick green glass of the window panes. So invoking a photographic metaphor for layered visions of the self allows for the construction of a powerful image of present and former self. And at the same time, by avoiding any sort of direct ekphrastic writing, the poet asserts the power of the poetic word to substitute for an embodied visual text that might differently represent her experience in the material world. Do um, super quick. So this is this is one of my favorite parts of the book, but I don't have a lot of time for it. So um, in in November of 1934, Sitaiva's uh, friends, the young aspiring poet in Paris, Nikolai Pavlovich Gronsky, died in either an accident or possibly a suicide in the Paris metro. And when Sitaiva found out about that, she went to his apartment in, in December and she was probably with his father, and she did an interior photographic study of his apartment, the stuff that he left behind. Um, and around the same time, she starts writing a cycle of poems, Nagrobia um, Tombstone, which is dedicated to Gronsky. Now, we know, we know this poem quite well, this cycle of poems, Nagrobia. It's written about a lot in scholarship, but it wasn't until I went to the archives in Moscow that I found the photographs that she took and made this connection between what happens in the photographs, the images in the photographs, and the images of the poem. So the poem starts out with the voice of the deceased Gronsky in sort of his last words. Um, to leave you behind his writing desk, leave you behind the, the chair, where have you gone? And she's on the search. It's kind of like what she does in Novogodnia, if you know this poem to Roka, right? About Roka says. She's on the search, this journey, looking for some trace of, of Gronsky's poetic soul. She's done this photographic study. Um, so here there's a reference, um, right? It's only in fairy tales and in icons, in pigments, right? Pigmented kraska is a reference to icon painting. And one of the photographs indeed has this icon. It's the Spasnu Broka which is a super photographic kind of icon, right? It's the image right, that's left not made by hands, just like photographic images, right? Or not made by hands. Um, and it was painted by Gronsky's mother, who was a pretty famous sculptor in the Paris, the Russian immigrant community in Paris. So that's there. This one's pretty obvious. Um, she sends this photograph, only this one, to Anna in, in um, Prague, and she writes that her books were among his on the on the bookshelf, right? So she feels this connection, and she you know, she tells her we took we took photographs of the whole room. But here we can see, right? This this search continues, um, and there are surrogates that stand in for his his body and his soul, but he's not really there. It's this in vain search. So we've got sort of the bed, the, his warmth is represented by this bed, but it's not there. His face is even represented on the mantle. The bust that his mother made of him are there. She was the sculptor, right? But, but he's not there. It's a failed search. She doesn't connect to him. 
However, in the, the second poem's conclusion, um, she sort of comes to a different realization. So she realizes what's left behind, right, is what it's, it's what we carry with us. And to honor all poets, right, all departed souls, we have to reject this idea that you know he's gone completely and taken everything. He hasn't taken everything. He's left behind his poems. So this SG monumentum sort of idea, right? Where I'm going to build a monument to myself in in verse. Um, Tatao also inserts herself into this sort of visual temporal plane of the photographs. Um, this is a double exposed image, and it really creeped me out when I was in the archives and I found it. Um, I had to get a magnifying glass, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, I see the desk, I see a lamp, there's that cabinet in the back, but then I turned it because there was something foggy, and this person appeared. It's here. It's wearing the survivor, and she's holding a book of Bronsky's poems, right? So she had somebody else take the photo, and they probably forgot to advance the film, right? And it's, and it, you get this double exposed image. I'm not sure it was deliberate. I think it was accidental, but she kept it. Um, and it's really, it's really striking. All right. So you can, you can read more analysis in the book, but I just, I think it, I wanted to share it. It's really exciting. So one more thing, um, Brodsky. Brodsky does an exegy monumentum poem that also brings in photography. Uh, it's part five of his Rimsky Vegi. And I think it's really, really interesting how he. Um, so Brodsky's all about. Brodsky does a couple things with his photo poems, and he's always got this tension between is photography a good way of preserving memory, or is poetry a better way of it preserving human experience? There's always this tension, right? Is photography as good as human memory, or, or, or is the written word better? or seeing things without a drug camera, is that better? And he takes that up in the song as well. So, я не возник уходящих случаем камень и вещи для их окраски, о своем я любом грядущем я узнал буквы черной краски. Так задремывает в обнимку свечи, что преломляя в линзе сни себя опознать по снимку, очнувшись более длинной жизни. I love this. He really asserts here that for him, it's about the written word. It's about the blacking on the page. That's how he's going to kind of see his own future after death. But other people do it differently. Other people, right, go into this embrace. Again, this idea of sleep and dreams, this optical unconscious, is like how we kind of understand ourselves. But it's with the life of camera. Um, so he's saying this, both of these things are okay. If, you, uh, if you're curious to learn more about this, um, Chapter three uh, it features these manuscript drafts of this this part of the of the poem that I found at the Bainiki Library, and you can actually see how he constructs these lines. Like he's got this much done, and he's got to figure out exactly how to write this up. And he tries lots of different things, and I analyze that in chapter three of the book. However, I don't have time to go into it today, so let me conclude uh, with this this final section. I wanted to offer some thoughts about what's happening very recently, some recent trends in photopoetic writing in Russian. Um, but if you're interested in more about Brodsky or Akhmadunin or anybody else that you see up here, I'd love to talk about it more in the Q&A. So I'm calling this conclusion Digital Denied Poetry and Photography After 1999. Poets since photography's invention have grappled with the allure of the medium's representational power and its unsettling relationship with time, mortality, and memory. 
And we might expect a poet's fascination with and concern about the, poet, the power and distortion of photographic representation to have intensified in this age of digital cameras in every pocket, in every phone, in every pocket. Um, but perhaps the most surprising thing about the evolution of photographic motifs in Russian poetry in the digital age is just how little of the sweeping cultural shift has found representation in poetic writing on photography since uh, the 1990s. Despite the ubiquity of cell phone cameras and the active use of social media for disseminating both poetry and photography, poems in Russian about the particular nature of digital image making are, are quite rare. And it's difficult to say whether we just haven't had enough time for this to sort of take root in, in the poetic tradition, or if it's, and this seems more likely to me, whether it's simply that photography's fundamental appeal remains rooted in pre-digital means of image making. So though there are comparatively few poems, uh, poems that do treat newer photographic practices allow us to speculate about the way that digital image making is making its way into the space of the Russian poetic imagination. I'm going to look first at a 1999 poem by the poet, musician, and activist Kirill Medvedev. He was born in 1975. Um, and it anticipates one hallmark of photography in the digital age, contemporary society's unsettling obsession with self-documentation. The poem is titled Minyasita Yait, it always surprises me. And it, um, actually I'll come to it in a minute. It centers on a powerful antidote, or it centers language as a powerful antidote to these impulses. And this echoes my larger argument in the book that it's the power of the verbal poetic expression that, that is dominant, right? That, that is gonna overcome photography's increasing dominance in the contemporary social cultural space. Um, writing in the final months of the 20th century, Medvedev presents us with a society on the cusp of the digital age. The first digital cameras enter the market in the early 1990s, but only gain ubiquity more than a decade later. The world of Medvedev's poem focuses on material incarnations of the pre-digital boom. He's writing about printed photographs and albums and video cassette recordings. Nonetheless, the obsession with self-documentation is a phenomenon that has certainly only amplified in recent years. Medvedev's poem is not the only text from the 1990s that looks at the practice of documenting lives in photographs. Um, I really love the Ruben Stein's 1995 index card poem, That's Me, at the Yacht. Uh, which constructs through a series of captions, a set of photographs, and the photographs aren't pictured, you only get these index card captions to the imagined photographs. And it playfully celebrates the assembling and archiving of personal histories. Medvedev's poem also addresses life building through photography, but his focus is instead on decrying the photograph status as an embodied physical manifestation of this obsession, this unhealthy obsession with self-documentation. A consequence of an economic force that encourages consumption, this consumer's orientation toward the past, creates a, quote, repulsively bourgeois drive to leave behind some sort of material proof of one's own or another's existence. For Medvedev, such narcissistic image-making practices threaten to supplant human memory or other abstract opportunities, as he calls them, that have always been central to human creativity. So let's look at the poem. Когда люди начинают снимать на фотоаппарате, на видеокамеру себя, и особенно своих детей, в этом есть, конечно, что-то милое и трогательно мужевное, но при этом в этом есть и что-то жалкое и отталкивающее бурзуазное. Они как будто хотят оставить какие-то вещественные доказательства своего и чужого существования. Мне кажется, что никаким абстрактным возможностям люди не, уже не доверяют. 
возможностям памяти, например, и некоторым другим возможностям. Maybe this particular discomfort with photographing and videotaping children, this is an act that he expresses this may have both in the beginning and the closing of the poem, operates as a modern-day extension of 19th century superstitions about photography stealing some metaphysical aspect of the subject. Uh, he sees this consumption of images as production of innumerable quote, phantoms and simulacra that threaten to supplant the quality of individual memory. For this poet, the substance of meaningful earthly existence lies in memories derived from powerful emotional experiences, not in the drive to supplant memory with photographic images. Мне кажется, что самые важные подробности откладываются у человека в памяти, и там спрессовывается какой-то особый событийный фермент, который, кстати, я думаю, и есть та самая пленочка, которая начинает раскручиваться перед смертью. Мне кажется, что у всех по-настоящему важных впечатлений, у страха, например, у восторга или у любви, нет и не может быть никаких документальных свидетельств. The politics issue with an apparent lack of faith in the abstract in this age of constant documentation, at this time of insistence on material proof of existence, a consumer's relationship to the past. The concern hinges on whether photography's ubiquity and the social conditioning to self-document is supplanting human memory. Medvedev figures a zero-sum game in which fulfilling the drive to transform experience into physical memory objects means that we abandon memories of the most important experiences, which are lost to this overflowing, useless archive of images. His text offers a kind of contemporary revision of Plato's Phaedrus dialogue, in which, uh, with its debate about whether writing should be viewed as an aid to memory or as the greatest threat to humans' capacity to remember. Uh, perhaps most relevant to the Sager's argument for the digital age, and indeed the, for the overarching principle of, of my book, is found in a concession the poet makes in a parenthetical aside in the poem, arguing that personal documentation is historical documentation. But Medvedev affirms here that what matters most of all is not photography, but language. Единственный по-настоящему живой исторический источник или даже не источник, а единственное живое тело в исторической перспективе – язык. Ну, это ладно. Well, this deflating transition, ну, это ладно, uh, would seem to dismiss its relevance. The poet uses similar rhetorical strategies throughout the poem they, to de seemingly deflate things. And they, they seem to undermine or diminish the force of his argument, but I think the effect is actually somehow the reverse. It's as if this rhetorical deflation equates with thematic significance in the space of Medvedev's text. Um, his frequent use of Munyakasitsa presents an almost too tentative voice, a hedging that permeates the text. Yet this rhetorical diminishing of the statement about the power of language has an inverse relationship to its overall significance. So it's couched in parentheses and followed by this dismissive North Eleven. The statement's given special weight. This is perhaps the most important core of Medvedev's approach to the photographic within the space of this poetic text. Consistent with examples throughout my, my book, poets rarely resist the urge to bring thoughts concerning the nature of visual image in, and its production into contact with ideas about the power of the written word. And here, though disguised in the parenthetical aside, the word language occupies its own line, flanked by long dashes, and at the very center of the poem, it's line 52 of, of 118. 
that this central place in the poem Nvidia makes a powerful claim about the word. The obsession with self-documentation can be traced to an interest in the material artifacts of historical knowledge. It is nonetheless language that, that, is, that he distinguishes as the only living body of historical perspective. It is language and poetry that can spare us in the end. Um, there's evidence that the concerns Medvedev articulated more than 20 years ago have become part of a new 21st century photopoetics, one that more actively rejects the power of the photographic. Photography is problematic not only in the way it captures and preserves existence, but also as a force that undermines our ability to see clearly and remember well. Um, to illustrate this hypothesis about the present and future of Russian language photopoetic writing in the digital age, I want to look at two examples of photo poems from a 2019 special issue of an online journal called Vayatochia. Um, and both issues are devoted to writing about photography, poems about photography. It's a really exciting corpus. If you're into this, um, I highly recommend looking at them. There's a, there's a lot of rich material. So each poem in its own way casts the camera aside. Um, let's just real quick. So this is a strange poem by Andrei Sinsenkov, a very strange poet. Um, it's, its title brings up this sort of clash between um, digital cameras and professional cameras. On the death of any man, even one who went his whole life photographing only on cell phone cameras. That's the title. That's typical cynical. Um, so this is a poem that's set at the burial of a professional photographer. Again, yeah, sort of elegy photography thing. The tools used to pay tribute to the photographer's life and le legacy are decidedly not cell phone cameras. But they're professional cameras whose detachable flashbulb system is characteristic of these early models of 40 or 50 years ago. And these are flashes that produce a whirring sound that's made by the battery pack. It has this line, the squealing of the nickel as the boost converters ramp up the voltage in preparation for the next shot. That's what that auditory signal is. The central underlying tension in the opponents between the photographic practices of professional photographers and their hyper-awareness of the status and expense of professional equipment, right? they worry the battery pack is going to be stolen, and the ubiquitous amateur pocket camera, the cell phone. While this opposition exists in the title and it's reinforced in the imagery of the text, the most striking thing about this photo poem for me is the way it effaces the photographic process entirely. We might expect a photo elegy feature an image of the deceased or some reference to a memory encoded in a photograph. Here we have nothing of the sort. Uh, those who have come to lay the photographer to rest make their final tribute in a spectacle of light, but the camera's function to capture and preserve is abandoned as they point their cameras downward and photograph nothing. Опустив объективы камеры вниз и просто нажимают кнопки, чтобы все красиво вспыхивало несколько мгновений, сажают крошечные батарейки, не прислушиваясь, как тебя пишет Николин. Вернувшись домой, батарейки, как стебли цветов, на, что положили на могилу, надламываются, чтобы их не украли. Right, this discomfort that we get from this text is coming from the way that the mechanical rituals of photography are presented here as both funereal right and the spotless prioritizing of this expensive equipment for memory and tribute and image. Um, so I think this is part of like a larger trend to sort of discard or, or undermine the photographic capture. All right, final poem. The negation of photographic capture is also at the core of Sergei Vasilyev's lyric Today, the 17th of May, 
Um, it's in the same issue of the Vasilyev's poem takes a different approach to the problem of incessant digital archiving of lived experience. His poem figures a rare moment of unencumbered vision and contemplation when the speaker's attention is drawn to a profoundly beautiful scene in nature. And though he reaches for his phone, he finds the batteries dead. This moment, however, is a gift. The lyric speaker takes in the beauty of the image before him without the mediation of the camera lens, without that drive to capture and keep the moment inhibiting him from savoring the pleasure of being fully present. The tools to which he ultimately turns to preserve the experience are instead verbal. The poem has a diary-like structure with a date accompanying the meditation on a profoundly peaceful and usually simple moment of seeing. Пришлось вспоминать, каково это видеть объект без посредников. Vasilyev's text continues this pattern throughout the book in which photography is invoked as a means of ultimately foregrounding or reasserting the power of the written word. Yet the simplicity of Vasilyev's moment of setting the camera aside embodies what well, may well be a new pattern of engaging with photography in the age of the cam cell phone cameras. A rejection of photographic self-documentation is collateral for being fully present in each extraordinary or ordinary moment of our lives. Whether poets embrace the representational tools of the photograph or reject contemporary culture's rewiring of human memory by means of a camera in every cell phone in every pocket, we can be sure that poets will continue to use the power of language to contend with and extend the limits of photographic representation. Photography as a source of the, for lexicon, metaphor, and models of writerly practice will persist as a source of new opportunities for illuminating consciousness, visualizing the invisible, and accessing aspects of human experience that, like snapshots of the soul, elude ordinary sensory perception. Thank you so much. These are some, some great books on um, Photopoetic writing, uh, brand new book on, on this in Chinese culture. There's Sergio Russian's book on um, photomontage. Russell's book is really excellent on Soviet writer, author, photographers, uh, a couple of things. So if this is exciting to you, I highly recommend these books. And I would love to take any questions.